Hello and welcome to this episode of the LDS Mission Cast, the podcast to educate and inspire in the great cause of missionary work. This is your host, Nick Coletti. This episode is part one of a two-part episode, or at least two episodes that go together very well. They feature the same guest, Mark Miner. Now, Mark's story is primarily a story of addiction recovery and the power of the atonement to help people overcome these challenges that we find so common today, these challenges of the natural man. Mark shares a very powerful story from his own life in part one of this two-part series. And that story is, well, it's a little bit long, but it's so powerful, it is so compelling, and we encourage you to stay for the whole time. One of the other things that I want to give as kind of a precursor to this telling of his story is as much as we try and stay a G-rated audience and a general audience, this particular story goes through some very heavy subject matter. It goes deep into a very deep and powerful addiction and discusses themes and subjects that we want to make sure the parents are aware of. There is also a particular spot in the episode where you may hear an expletive bleeped out. We have chosen to leave that in so that you can know the intensity of the experience in which Mark was finding himself. But we also understand that the podcast is a place where we want to maintain the spirit as much as is possible. So we've decided to take that approach and balancing this very rare time on our podcast where we are dealing with some very edgy and sensitive topics. So we hope that you stay tuned that you listen to this episode. Next week's episode will be part two, and that particular episode will go into more of Mark's experience as an addiction recovery program missionary, as well as some of the ways that we as missionaries might be able to use the addiction recovery program in our proselyting efforts and ministering efforts to those that are around us and those whom we are called to minister to. So please stay tuned to the whole thing. Thank you very much for tuning into the LDS Mission Cast. Here it is my interview, at least part one of my interview, with Mark Miner. So our guest on this episode is a friend of mine from a long time now, I guess maybe over 10 years, maybe 14? Uh, yeah, about 14 years. 14, 15 years, something like that. I first met our guest, Mark Miner, when I served a service mission for LDS Family Services. Mark's story is powerful enough that we're going to split it into two parts, and his experience and education on the matters of addiction recovery are something that is important for missionaries on a number of levels. So part one is going to be talking about Mark's personal story, and then part two, we're going to get into more some of the practical aspects of it. But thank you for coming in, Mark, and for being willing to give of your time so freely. I'm grateful to be here. Your story is one that I've heard a number of times. I've even read your pre-published book that hopefully will come out soon. But uh, it's a story that speaks so powerfully of the atonement. So let's start out, though, when uh, you grew up and where you grew up and, and how the church was a part of your life at an early age. Well, my mom and my dad were our heroes. It was me and my little sister. We were 18 months apart. We were best friends and, and grew up. My dad was a military officer. We got moved around a lot. We always believed in 
family, country, God, 4th of July, picnics, parades, puppy dogs, and baseball. (laughs) That was all part of it. And I really thought life was wonderful. We got uh, restationed over to Berlin, Germany when I was about six. My sister would have been four and a half. And we'd been over there for less than a year. And my parents came from active LDS families, so they would often take me and my sister to church or get people in the LDS ward to bring us to church, but they didn't stay themselves. But nonetheless, we we had uh, prayer over meals, and we believed in Jesus, and we celebrated Christmas, and I thought life was just fine. When I was six going on seven, my parents had this horrible argument, and they seldom argued. And my mom seemed to be devastated. In fact, she was. I have never seen my mom cry before or since as she did this one day. And I just stuck by my mom's side. I said, Mom, I've got to know what's going on. And she kept just shaking her head. She couldn't even get words out. And long story short, I, I finally said, Mom, you have to tell me what's wrong. And at that moment, my dad stuck his head into the kitchen, and I saw a look on his face, an awful look that I've never seen before or since. And I knew something was really wrong. And then my mom just blurted out, your dad has found another woman. He doesn't love me anymore. He loves her. Now, how does a little kid process that? You were six? I was almost seven. I still remember it very clearly. You're not given a manual on how to fix your parents. And, or should you? You know, uh, one of my favorite songs in recent years has been a song by the Christian group called Mercy Me. It's called Dear Younger Me. And it says, Dear Younger Me, you're not. it's not your fault. This should never have been carried beyond the foot of the cross. Mm. And this is what a man growing up would have said to his younger self. He said, this is, this is where you leave it at Jesus' feet. But I didn't know that. I thought my job was to try to fix my parents. And the only way I knew that how to do that was to be the best kid I could. And so I was I was good in school, but I became I became obsessed with becoming perfect in school. Never missed a day of school after that. Even if I was sick, I would just suck it up and go. I got straight A's all the way through eighth grade. My dad seemed to value education, so that that explains the school part. And he also valued uh, sports. I remember playing baseball when I was young, and the only thing that I was really good at is I could swing a baseball bat. So I determined I was going to become good at sports. And I finally, you know, I was clumsy, but I finally became good enough to make some teams. And then I made multiple teams. And then I finally made all-star teams. And I started hitting home runs in games and scoring touchdowns in football and doing other things. And and when I was 12, uh, my parents were still together, although their relationship was rocky. My dad got sent to Vietnam for 13 months. And as I mentioned, my parents were not particularly active religiously, but that changed during that time. My dad would send us tapes from Vietnam and saying that he was praying for us. And every night, my mom, my sister, and I would kneel down and pray for my dad that he would come home safely. And after 13 months, I was 13 years old, he did come home safely. We had been transferred to the Washington, D.C. area. My dad had been at the Pentagon before going to Vietnam. And we met at the airport, and my parents saw each other, and they literally ran to each other and hugged and kissed. And I knew it was genuine, 
And in my heart, I thanked God. I said, God, thank you. I knew that the 10 or 20 prayers a day that I had offered for all these years were being answered, and then my parents were back together again. Now, at some point, you got baptized. Oh, yeah. Uh, my parents did come to—when I was eight, I got baptized, and my sister, when she became eight. And those were the only two times I literally remember my parents being at church. Mm. You know, LDS wards are really good about giving kids rides to church. <laughs> so, wherever we lived, we were given rides to church. And I still remember the name of the family in the, in the D.C. area. I lived there from when I was nine till I was 13. They were the Halls. And the Halls lived a mile or two away. And they would come over. And this is back when we didn't have the three-hour block. We had church multiple times on Sundays yeah. and then during the week. They would always come over and pick me up. And another family, uh, the Gleasons, would give uh, my sister Leslie a ride to church. But I remember the hall so well because when I was 12, I guess Brother Hall got permission for me as a new deacon to become his home teaching companion. Oh, very cool. And he made me feel very important. And I would ride to and from church with them multiple times a week. And it didn't hurt at all that the Halls had three really cute daughters, one of whom was my <laughs> age. And so they showed me what an LDS family was about. They were very devout in their worship. They were close to one another. And they obviously cared about other people. And so after this episode at the airport, I remember my dad even came to church with me after coming back from Vietnam, and I don't think my dad had ever advanced in the church beyond being a teacher, but he was coming to priesthood meeting with me. Very cool. But about four months after that, I hear my parents having another argument, and then I hear something about another woman again, mm. and I thought I had failed. And I think that's when I started to believe that my best was not good enough and I wondered if it ever would be. And not too long after that, my dad retired from the Army after 20 years. We moved to Salt Lake in the middle of my eighth grade year, and my parents started sleeping in separate bedrooms. I just thought that I had given my best and I wasn't good enough to fix my parents, and I, so I'd failed the Lord, I'd failed them, and I'd failed myself. Now, this realization was kind of slow in coming, but I can look back and clearly see that the fire dwindled in me and then it went out altogether. And by the time I was about 15, I was no longer going to church. I had kind of given up on the idea that, that I could ever be good enough for God. And I stopped believing in teachers and preachers and parents and authority figures. And we moved down to Arizona uh, right before my 16th birthday. And I, I only remember going to church a couple of times down there. My dad had also started drinking again. I think he had started drinking back when we were in Germany, and it seemed like he hadn't uh, continued all the time. But down in Arizona, I noticed he was drinking all the time. My parents were in separate rooms. My sister and I were teenagers, and for some reason, we were no longer as close. And I thought I'd find happiness in my own way. Looking back, I can see that I would probably have been classified as clinically depressed because all I remember for probably a three-year period is my whole world felt gray. I had little joy in my life. Uh, the only thing that actually got my heart beating was... Uh, hoping for a relationship with a young woman because I was attracted to girls, but nothing ever happened along that front. And then 
uh, when I would listen to music. And so rock and roll became kind of my uh, go-to. I remember going to my first concert uh, when I was 13. What time period was this again? Uh, this was when we were still in Salt Lake. Okay. I was 13. It was not long after we'd moved from D.C. to Salt Lake, and I saw Led Zeppelin at the Salt Palace in Salt Lake, and it did something. It, um, it kind of filled that hole in my chest that had been so empty because of my parents' relationship and See, what I've come to understand is that many of us have what I would call a God hole in us, that perhaps it happens when we are separated from our heavenly parents and we come to earth. And families and going to church and accomplishments here on this earth can largely fill that hole if we are very proactive and positive and faithful. But to the degree that we're not, that hole seems to be kind of a gaping hole. And, you know, clearly to me now, it's uh, Satan will rush into the void. And I think rock and roll rushed into that void and it filled me to a degree. I remember feeling a power at that concert the first time that I was unlike anything else I'd ever experienced. So I thought, okay, this is the answer. But, you know, it would, it would go away quickly, and so I'd listen to more rock and roll. And rock and roll invites you to, to live alternative lifestyles. <laughs> and I resisted that for quite some time because I didn't want to drink like my dad had drank. But long story short, we had moved down to Arizona right before my 16th birthday— I didn't know anybody down there. It was 100 degrees. There wasn't even grass. It was just a bunch of cactus yeah. and rocks. And I thought I'd kind of died and gone to hell because I was so self-absorbed. <laughs> All I could think about was myself. I was a typical teenager. If I had had church to go to, if I had had a trusted confidant, maybe I could have weathered the storm. But the only thing I knew was I was still pretty good at sports, so I would hang out at the gym up on Fort Huachuca, which is the military base where my dad was stationed as an intelligence officer. And I would just go hang out and play basketball up at the gym. And one day in July, we'd only been there for a couple of weeks, I wandered into the military barracks next door, the enlistment's barracks, and there was a beer machine in there. Which is funny. And uh, Yeah, they've beer never had beer machine. machines before or since, I don't think. It was a short-lived experiment, but back then you could put a quarter and buy a beer. And the curiosity got me this one day. I bought two beers, put them in my gym bag, hit them out behind the gym, and after playing basketball, I went out and drank this beer, which was probably 100 degrees. Yeah, I was going to say, that'd be pretty and it, warm. And it, not only was it warm, it, it was thoroughly nasty. It was. <laughs> it kind of tasted like my sweat socks smelled. I remembered I just barely choked it down, but then something happened. It filled the void in this God hole. This emptiness in my chest was filled with something warm and fuzzy. And when I went home that night, took the bus back down into town, I didn't matter that my parents were arguing. I didn't even pay attention to that. So the next day I came up to the gym, did the same thing again. And by the time school started, I was often getting six or eight beers and drinking them all. And this is in high school. Yeah, this was uh, right before my uh, junior year of high school yeah. was to start. I was I had just turned 16 that July, and so all through August. And then after school started, I would some of my friends would sometimes have cars. We'd go up onto base. Sometimes I'd just take, a, take the bus up there, but I would go up there every day and get beer. 
And then I started hanging out in the parking lot with different people before and after school and at lunch. And I started smelling something that I knew had to be weed. And I was really intrigued by weed because the barriers had already been broken. I had drank beer. Nothing bad had happened. So I remember the first time I smoked weed, and I had heard all these horror stories in health class and, you know, the uh, on TV. You know, they, even back in the early 70s, they had don't-do-drug commercials and stuff. But yet it was celebrated in the rock and roll culture and, yes, and it all was. that stuff. In fact, at that very first concert, the thing that intrigued me, as much as the music, there was a girl, an older girl, was sitting in the chair next to me. So I was 13 then. She must have been about 16. You know, she was... An, this mysterious older girl, and she was cute, and halfway through the concert, she was standing on her chair smoking something, and I knew it wasn't tobacco. But she didn't offer anything to me, but that was the allure, is that, oh, she was just having fun, and look how cute she is, and, and it seemed like she really enjoyed the music. So when it was offered to me in the school parking lot for the first time, I said, what the heck, if there's anything that goes bad, I can always back up and start again. You know, nothing's going to be, nothing's going to hurt invincible. me. Yeah. You know, 10 foot tall and bulletproof like most teenagers, <laughs> right? Right. So I smoked it. And the only thing that happened is that the music sounded better. The girls look cuter. <laughs> and I had a real appetite for brownies and, and tortilla chips, you know, Doritos. Um, but nothing else bad happened. And when I came down from it, I felt normal. And I went, wow, they've been lying to me, all these warnings mm. about it. I'm not acting crazy. I'm not wanting to go do anything bad. And so I started smoking weed in addition to drinking beer. This went on for two or three months with no interruption, but nothing bad happened. And your parents had no clue? My no parents indication? had no clue. They... They were so wrapped up in their own—they were in separate worlds. I think my mom had just become very isolated and kind of insulated because she had been so hurt. My dad was involved with his work, and I think he was probably drinking every day. I know within a year or two of us moving down there, he was drinking every day. So that had probably already started, and I just hadn't even noticed so it was like four of us were living in our own separate worlds in this house because my sister and I weren't even talking much anymore. My sister was still going to church, but I, I didn't go. Long story short, about 18 months from the time that I first drank that beer and then smoked that pot, I had progressed to trying other things. And some things I liked and some things I didn't. And so I thought I was invincible, as you mentioned. Is this like when you say other things, what you're talking other drugs? Yeah. I had tried, uh, I had tried these kind of pills, that kind of hallucinogen. Some of them I liked, some of them I didn't. But there wasn't any of them that seemed to cause me any real heart heartburn, or bad after effects. Now, a couple of times, I didn't like the high that I got from, so I said, I'm not going to do that drug again. But unfortunately, I had found a drug that I did like, and I started to do it every day, and that drug was heroin. You know, I, I had heard the warnings about heroin, and the first few times that I did it, it was a love-hate relationship. I remember throwing up from it. So my body was trying to tell me, this is not good for you. Do not do this. But all the other effects were very pleasurable, and I had no—and it was like it took away every worry that I had. 
And before I knew it, I was doing it every day. And we were living down close to the Mexican border, so it was super cheap when I first started doing it. I remember the first time I did it, it cost me $3. So I kept on doing it until 18 months had gone by, and I got arrested. It was February of my senior year in high school, and I had had a few consequences along the way, but I had not been able to stop doing the heroin. And I got arrested for a couple of burglaries to pay for my addiction to heroin because that initial $3 hit had, had gone up to like a $40 or $50 a day habit. And when minimum wage was $1.25 an hour back then, there was no way that I could work enough at my job at Dare Wienerson that sold to pay for that. <laughs> and so I started to steal. And I would steal from my parents. I would steal from stores. And then I started breaking into stores and even into houses. And I got arrested. This was probably, was this the first, this arrest? Is this the first indication your parents had of any pretty issues much. that you were having? Yeah. Pretty so much. It, it hit blindsided them. Yeah. And... They didn't really know what to do. But interestingly, when it, when you're a juvenile and your first or second time of getting in trouble, they don't really throw away the key. They put me into the youth prison system, but within about six weeks, I, I made it to a halfway house in Tucson. They just told you there's really only one rule. Don't keep getting high. Don't drink. Don't get high. And that was the first rule that I broke. <laughs> and, of course, I got caught. And so they put me right back into the youth prison system again. And then they gave me another chance a month later or so, six weeks later. And this time I said, I'm too smart. I'm not going to let them catch me. Somebody had told me you could mask heroin by drinking vinegar. I drank a whole bottle of vinegar. Oh. So, so not only did I get an extremely sour stomach, I got uh, busted for having dirty urine as well because the vinegar didn't work either. And... <laughs> And they put me, when they put me back in this time, they said, look, uh, you're getting close to 18. We will remand you to adult court if you don't toe the line. But I had gone so far astray that I eventually escaped from that youth prison, and I went out. And I'm not going to tell you the whole long, sordid story, but I ended up getting a ride back down to Sierra Vista. I committed a robbery. I robbed a Circle K. And and then I got some more heroin, and I overdosed. But somehow or another, I woke up the next morning, and I had lost my hearing, but I got scared into turning myself in. I went over to my parents' house. They said the police were looking for me. I couldn't even hear what they were saying. I just had this ringing in my ears. But they... They took me back up to the youth prison, and I turned myself in. And then a month later, some detectives came and asked me about the robbery, and I admitted it. And so they remanded me to adult court, and I ended up spending over five years in the Arizona State Prison then. No excuses. I was given multiple chances. And I, the only reason I tell all these details is that people need to understand how, how pernicious and absolutely sneaky— addiction really is. It undermines everything that you think that you know, and it tells you that you're still in control when you're so far out of control that there is no hope unless you get help and admit that you need help. And so I got, I got thrown into the prison system, and I was pretty much scared straight. I decided in that prison system that I was going to toe the line. Now, 
not long after I was in, they told me I needed to go to a meeting. And I went to a meeting. It turned out to be an AA meeting. Uh, they didn't have Narcotics Anonymous back then. But they said, kid, you're in, you're in prison because of drug-related offenses. This is the only therapy we really have. Go to this AA meeting. Yeah. And I still remember my perceptions of those first few meetings that I went to. I recognized the sincerity of the people that brought the meetings in. We were in Florence, Arizona, which is 60, 70 miles from the Phoenix area. And the people that brought the meeting in drove all the way from Phoenix to come in. And they did this free of charge. And so I knew they were volunteers and that they were sincere and they believed what their message was. So I gave them credit for that because I knew they were sincere. Nobody comes into the walls of Florence, Arizona, unless they believe what they're, what they're bringing to you. Yeah. But then I started picking apart the differences. See, I had graduated from alcohol to, to drugs, and so I saw that was one obvious difference. But then I, th- I looked at these guys, and most of them were older, more mature guys who had— a lot of them had lost their their hair. And I, I literally remember saying in my head, they're just a bunch of old, fat, bald guys. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and I looked at them as somewhat as backward people. And I said, I'm glad it works for them, but I've got to, I'm smarter than that. I've got to figure this out on my own. How old because were you at this point? I was, I had just turned 18. Yeah. Okay. And, See, there were, because there were two things that they said that I was opposed to. First, they said the whole 12 steps were based on their idea of the God of their understanding. They used the word higher power some, right. but most of the time they called God of their understanding. And I said, you know, maybe there's still a God, but if so, I've burned my bridges. I've really ruined it with God. And then they kept talking about honesty and not just honesty, but rigorous honesty, and I said, I can't be rigorously honest here in prison. They'll rip me to shreds. And so I just said, you know what? I'm going to figure this out on my own. So I ended up getting my uh, high school diploma because I was uh, while I was in prison. And then I got, I got involved in the college uh, program there. And over time, I ended up getting an associate's degree with a 4.0. I exercised every day. I remember the first time I tried to bench press, I couldn't even get 100 pounds off my chest. But over the years, I finally got to where I could bench over 300 pounds and squat over 500 pounds. I made the prison baseball team and fast-pitch softball team, and I even hit a couple of home runs in a game multiple times. And and I got in the best shape of my life because I was exercising every day. Even when we couldn't go to the to the weight uh, pile, I would I would end up exercising in my cell, doing 500 or sometimes even a thousand push-ups and sit-ups a night. I would run on myself for an hour straight. I got I could jog 10 miles at a time. I was in the best shape of my life and I took every self-help group that they had except when they would mention God in these self some of these mm. help I would kind of just tune out and say well I'm glad that works for them but but I was I was serious about wanting to get education. And I even got involved in creative writing and poetry workshops, and, and you know, I kept my college up and everything else. Long story short, after I'd been in prison for close to five years, and I finally got paroled and, uh, to Tucson, and I was uh, accepted into the University of Arizona because I had, I had good grades and everything. And I had not drank or used in five years. And I remember I'd been 
two weeks into the semester, I went to the student union building uh, at the University of Arizona and had a piece of pizza for lunch. And I decided to, you know, it's been five years since I've had a beer. Uh, I'll have one beer with it because, you know, they offer that in the student union. And I had one beer with a piece of pizza. And the next thing I remember, I'm waking up on the floor um, in my classroom, and I'm hearing all this laughter, and I'm wondering why I'm on the floor, and then I realize they're laughing at me. Then I had this vague recollection of that one beer turning into two pitchers of beer. Wow. And I passed out. In the middle of class. In the middle of class. So you're about 23 years old now at this point. Yeah, yeah, that's how old I was. Yet denial is a very powerful thing. (laughs) Um, I, I told myself, I remember this very clearly, well, it's just weed and beer because I'd had a joint too. I remember when I, and I said, I'm not going to do anything harder than that. And yet a month or two later, I had had four dirty urines for opiates and cocaine. So that little bit of weed and beer, pretty soon I was doing other stuff and I got dirty urines and my parole officer uh, shackled me up and sent me back into prison for the last 10 and a half months of my sentence. And I remember sitting back in the prison again. I got sent up to Fort Grant this time, which was a minimum security. And I, so I got back into college classes. And while I was doing these college classes, I was thinking a lot more seriously about life because it had kind of humbled me, you know, getting sent back in. Sure. I, I wasn't expecting that. I was, I was also writing to this girl that I had known in high school, and I had seen her when I was down at the U of A, and we started uh, connecting. And I started thinking that the only thing that I've never experienced in my life is is true love. and And I was... I was falling in love with this girl. We were right back and forth a couple of times a week. And I remember I was taking a class on comparative religion and philosophy, and it was an upper division class, and you had to write a thesis on what was your religion, your philosophy, or your worldview. You had to write a 10 or 20-page paper and then defend it uh, orally for 10 to 15 minutes before the class. Wow. That's so, very humbling for someone in your situation. Yeah, it was. And we had the opportunity. We had a Hindu holy man come in and present to us. We had a Native American come in and even run a modified sweat lodge. I had started reading the Bhagavad Gita. We had a Muslim adherent come in and explain Islam to us. We talked about the Greeks and the Romans and the existentialists a little bit. And then we had a variety of Christian teachers and preachers and priests come in. And so we had we had different presenters every week in the class. And it really got me thinking, what do I believe? And as I was I was writing to my girlfriend this one night, Something outside of me spoke to me and said, what are you going to do with her when you get out? And I realized that I really cared for this girl, and I didn't want to hurt her. And then it became really clear that if I don't know where I'm going, then I'm likely to get lost and drag her down with me. And I was completely unwilling to do that. And so I started to dig deep inside of myself and say, what is it that I really believe in? 
And I started recognizing truths across all of these religions. I remember one of the first great truths that I recognized. Some people called it karma. Some people called it the law of the harvest. And in popular psychology, they just pretty much said, well, it goes around, comes around. But what you give out comes back to you again. You give out good, then good will return. You do crap, then crap's going <laughs> to yeah. land on your head someday. It's and a boomerang. It, and it was clear that almost every philosophy addressed that. So I started looking for commonalities across the board, and I realized most of the things that I that I believed in and respected said, okay, we, we believe in protecting children, respecting elders, and love was the basis across all of these religions, love or and, and respect from the creator and from the creator, whoever you imagine the creator or the God of your understanding was. And so I started finding all this common ground, and in the middle of all all of this, I found myself feeling the Spirit for the first time in 10 years. I felt that God was trying to reach through to me, and it was I felt it in a very powerful way that was almost undeniable to the point where I finally one day I dropped to my knees in my prison cell, and I prayed. And I had not prayed aloud for probably nine or 10 years. And I said, God, I believe that you're there. I believe that you're trying to help me, but I don't get why, because I'm a convict, and by then I was willing to admit that I'm an alcoholic and an addict, and I said, I've broken all of your rules, and I couldn't fix my parents, and about the only thing I've never done, I've never committed murder or rape, but I've, I've broken so many other rules, how could you possibly want to help me? And something happened then that I never expected, but I heard and felt these words, Mark, it's because I love you. And I knew it was the word of God. It was the voice of God. And this wasn't some philosophical God that we were talking about in our classes. This wasn't some existential idea. This was my creator. And it was like he had ripped off the veil this helmet that had kept me blind and deaf uh, for so many years was taken away and I could see and feel and hear for the first time. And since I was a kid, and all I felt coming from God was love. There was no judgment. There was no do this and straighten yourself up so we can talk. It was like, just let me hold you and love you. And I stayed on my knees for probably two hours just talking to God and sobbing because first there were a lot of tears of shame and guilt because I recognized that he had been there all along. It was abundantly clear that he had protected me through all these experiences with drugs and in prison and in fights in prison and all these other things. It was God that had kept me alive. It was God who had been with me since day one when I was a little kid who had talked to me and told me to not give up on my folks. And it was God who was then telling me that it wasn't my fault about my folks. And all I felt was love. And finally my tears turned into tears of joy because I knew he was giving me another chance. He was saying, just get up and take my hand. And... I've got you now. And I remember when I finally got up, 
It was with a hope that was reborn in my chest that I had not felt since, you know, I was praying every day for my mom and my dad. And I remember asking them, okay, you've got to show me which religion, what church is true. And I had this prompting to just pick up this. So I'd been in all these classes and listened to all these teachers and preachers and everything else. And the one thing I had never do, done was crack the Bible. Now, I listened in class when people had written, uh, read things from the Bible. Yeah. But there was one of these Gideon New Testaments in the corner of, the, of my prison cell. The Gideons are really good about putting little pocket New Testaments oh, yeah. in hotel rooms <laughs> and in, in prisons and jails. Yeah. And so I went over and picked it up. And there was like, a quarter inch of dust on it. I, I, I'm ashamed to admit that there was, I had never opened this. And I remember when I opened it, the back of it cracked because it had been sitting in this dry prison cell for so many years. And even, you know, other inmates had been in there too, but it had never been opened. And I opened it and it cracked. And I opened it and I put my finger on a verse and I still remember the verse with absolute clarity. It was 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And it said, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. This was King James English. And yet, it was so clear what the Spirit was telling me. It said, hey, God is with you. Every man is tempted. If you'll trust in me, I'll show you how to get through the temptation and get past it, and we will be one. Yeah. I underlined that scripture. And then I read Psalms and Proverbs, and then I read the New Testament after that. And I knew that Jesus was the Christ by the time I had finished that. And so I, I was continuing to pray, and I asked God about the Book of Mormon. Now, why did that come up? Because I had come from a Mormon background. So you did remember it. Oh, yes, absolutely. And in fact, it was one of the guards there was LDS. Okay. And I had had a couple of conversations with him, and I'd even admitted something. I, I admitted to this guard a lie that I had told because I knew I had told a lie, and it had got somebody— an, it had got another guard in trouble. Mm. And and I told him, I said, hey, I want to take back what I said. This was my fault. He had nothing to do with that. And the guy looked at me, and he just started to talk to me. And then he, he would come by every time he'd come by my cell. So I was in a lockdown unit then. Um, I had gotten in some trouble. And that's a whole other story for another day. <laughs> but this guy s said— so where are you at with your religion? And I said, well, I know that Jesus is real, and he is the Savior of the world, and I'm asking him to be my Savior. And he says, well, tell me about your background. And I said, well, I was raised a Mormon, but—and he goes, why don't you give that a chance? He just—that's all he said. And so he got me a Book of Mormon. Oh, very cool. I still remember I was about page 50 to 60 in the Book of Mormon. I just started 2nd Nephi, and I gained my testimony of the veracity of the Book of Mormon. And it was as powerful and as enduring as was that first testimony of Jesus being the Christ. And so that began my conversion. I soon finished the Book of Mormon. I read the New Testament again. I think I read the Book of Mormon twice and the New Testament three times before I got out of prison. And then I got out because my my sentence was up, and I got to come and live with my aunt and uncle up in uh, Sandy, Utah. And who's your aunt and uncle? We got to put that out. Vaughn and Merlene Featherstone. 
And the reason that came about is because I started becoming active in the church before I got out. They're in prison. And the, the fellow that was the inmate spiritual leader there, he was kind of my sponsor. He was the first one that I ever did the fourth step of AA with. He was not a recovering alcoholic, but he knew the he knew the twelve steps, and he knew the fourth step is the step of repentance and confession. And so he had me work a fourth step because he said, "If you want to get right with God, you got to get you got to get right with God. This is as good of a vehicle as any." And then he said, "What do you want to do with your life?" And he knew that I was on fire. I said, "I want to go on a mission." And he kind of smiled and said. <laughs> I don't know if they're going to let you go on a mission getting right out of prison. Well, but you were 24 I was 24 point. then, So this yeah. was pushing the limit of the age. Yeah, and I didn't even know anything about that. But he said, who do you know in the church? And there were two people, I, three people I knew in the church. I knew my sister. I knew this bishop who had come to visit me while I was in prison a few years before from my Sierra Vista ward. But he had been released as the bishop. And, and I knew my uncle was an authority in the church. And I didn't even really know what a general authority meant. He goes, why don't you just write to your uncle and just ask him to direct you? The next thing I know, they're, they're saying, why don't you come and stay with us? My, my parents' divorce had been finalized by then. And so I came up and stayed with my aunt and uncle. And uh, So at this point, Von J. Featherstone was a general authority. Yeah, he had been. He had been in the presiding bishopric and had been a 70. So this was... Uh, uh, I moved up there in January of 1981. Okay. And so I think he'd been in since 1971 or 72. So you eventually make your way and get a mission call. Yeah. I stayed in their home for four and a half months, and he said, it is possible for you to serve a mission, but you have to— you have, we have to make sure you're worthy. And he says, and I have to, he didn't use the word recuse myself, but he says, I can't be the one to determine that. So you're going to have to talk to the bishop, then the stake president, then the stake president had me go talk to another general authority. And they all said that I was worthy. Where'd you get your mission call? To San Bernardino, California, Spanish speaking. There it is. And it was, it was really interesting from the day that I put my papers in till the day I reported in the MTC was 22 days. Wow. Um, it was kind of like I was shot out of a cannon. <laughs> yeah. And in that 22 days, I, I uh, became an elder and got my patriarchal blessing. And then I drove down to Arizona to drop my stuff off at my mom's and say goodbye to my mom and drove back up and... And I went to the temple for the first time with one of my high school friends who had, who even though I was an inactive member, had been a very faithful friend, Richard Hogan. To this day, we are good friends. I was going to go to the temple for the first time with my grandfather on my mom's side, but he had a bad case of the flu and wasn't able to go. So Richard Hogan had me drive down to Provo, and we went to the Provo Temple a couple of days before I went into the MTC. And I was able to serve a wonderful mission. Missions are not easy. Anyone that tells you that a mission is easy hasn't really paid the price to really serve a, uh, a mission. But it was, it was one of the best, most refining and strengthening and enlarging experiences of my life. And it was wonderful. I served under Howard and Marjorie Sharp. He was a medical doctor from Salt Lake. And the last few months of the mission, I, I was his Spanish assistant to the president, and I gave my all in my mission. 
And then they hadn't raised the bar very high for BYU yet back then either because they accepted <laughs> me into BYU. Yeah, so you're back now in Utah. Yeah. Going to BYU. And as people at BYU do, it's a marriage, the path to marriage. Oh, yes. And I was 26 by then. I turned 25 in the MTC. And so I was back at BYU. I was 26 and a half. And uh, I only served an 18-month mission. I, I went out during when the church had actually yeah. cut them down to 18 months. And I met this girl just a couple months in that things had never worked out with that girl down in Arizona. And we're, we are still friends to this day. But this other girl... I fell head over heels with her. I thought she was the most beautiful woman. and That happens and, sometimes with return missionaries. <laughs> yes, it kind of does. <laughs> and she was classy. She was on the ballroom dance team, and she sure had a great smile. And we dated for about five months. And I finally, I went to the temple, and I asked the Lord, and, and I thought I received my answer. So I asked her to marry me on the same day she decided to break up with me. Long story short, I tried three times to get back together with her. And the third time, she just gently said, oh, Mark, the fire's gone out. Please go. And she, and she shut the door. And what I realize now is the answer God gave to me is that, yes, Eileen is a very good woman. And if she feels the same about you as you feel about her, I give you my blessing. But what I thought God was telling me is that she's the one and only for you. You better not mess this one <laughs> there's up. There's no way this could go wrong. And, and when, yeah. I, when I asked her three times and, I met, and it didn't work, I thought I had failed again. My level of spiritual maturity and emotional maturity just was not where it could have been. And if I had just made one decision, I'm going to trust God no matter what, we would never be having this conversation to tell about my story. But I believe those inner voices that said your best is not enough. And I started to have those internal doubts to the point where I was so devastated that I thought— I had ruined the chance to marry the woman that God had given to me. Self-judgment is as bad as letting the devil judge you. Because if you don't have the spirit with you when you're judging, you're as likely to judge unrighteous judgment as you are to get it right. And I, I judge myself as not being good enough or worthy enough. It's kind of hard to live when you believe that your best is not enough. Interestingly enough, I had a root canal already scheduled for that same time. So I went a couple days later and had the root canal done. At the end of it, they gave me this prescription. I look at it, I recognize this is a narcotic. And this little bell goes off in my head saying, warning, do not do this. You've been clean and sober for three and a half years. Don't go down this path. But I thought, you know, I'm just going to put it in my pocket just in case. And the next day, my, my jaw was hurting, but in truth, my heart was hurting a lot more. And that God hole had been ripped wide open. And I just said, oh, I'm just going to fill this prescription. And I'll take it as prescribed. That was the first lie that I told myself. I did take the first one as prescribed, but when it started to have its effect, I go, oh, I like that. And before I knew it, I had, I had reversed the prescription prescription. It said one or two every four to six hours is needed for pain. And before that day was over, I was taking four or six every hour or two. Mm. And the prescription was gone within a couple of days. And I had started down the role of addiction again. 
you're at this point now in your life where you have, let's just say you've relapsed. Is that the right word? Correct. So you've relapsed due to a prescription pain thing, but it, it doesn't take long for things to kind of fall apart again. That's correct. Once you have become an addict, it's very short order before your addiction is as bad as it ever was. And I ended up, you know, I fought hard. I, I would get pills and then I'd flush them, throw them away. And then sometimes I'd even go dig them out of the dumpster where I'd go to another doctor and get some more pills. And because I've got a, an issue with my lower back and it shows up on x-rays, I've got a built-in excuse if I want to get yeah. pills. But, you know, I was fighting that fight because I knew what was right, and yet uh, the pills were holding sway over me. And finally, after dealing with that for basically a year on and off— I reached the breaking point, and I went and told my stake president I needed to be released from my calling. Uh, I was elders quorum president. I went to BYU and told them I needed to withdraw from school and be released from the partial scholarship that I had. And I went into a detox, and I still remember I'd been in that detox for 17, 18 days and gone through a whole—I was feeling better by then. I had gone through a whole battery of tests. They gave you the MMPI and Rorschach tests and all these psychological evaluations, and they diagnosed me as— Manic depressive with distinct depressive tendencies and a few other things. Uh, they even mentioned something possible schizoaffective disorder. I've never and, heard of that. Yeah. Well, in other words, I could have a psychotic breaks, schizophrenic breaks. Oh. Okay. So I thought, okay, now I know what's wrong with me. And I remember my stake president, uh, it was his counselor, but he was the same one who'd give me PPIs for a couple of years as I was elders quorum president. We'd become good friends, and he came to visit me, and we were talking, and I said, yeah, I know exactly what I need to do, I, and I got these prescriptions, and when I get out, he goes, tell me about it. And, and I told him all the things, and I've never heard this man swear before or since, but I will, I will be honest. You can edit it if you need to. He goes, no shit. <laughs> and I went, what? What do you mean, president? And he goes, so you don't think your diet of drugs and alcohol over the past year has anything to do with this manic depression and this schizoaffective tendency? And I go, what are you trying to say? And he goes, they've been tell- sending you to 12-step meetings here too, haven't they? And he said, yeah. He says, what does it tell you to do there? And... I was stuttering a bit, and he goes, it tells you to trust God. He goes, why don't you trust God for a while? And then if things don't get better, then you can decide whether to fill those prescriptions. And I thought, hmm, well, thanks for sharing, but... <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm no, addicted, and I want these pills. Yeah, and I, I thought that was a nice take, but this guy doesn't really understand addiction. He doesn't know me. And so a few days later, it was required that we go to 12-step meetings and that we get a sponsor. Some of the signs are, it was kind of like a court card, but it was a treatment card saying that we had met with them uh, before and after a meeting or whatever. And I met with this guy three or four times, and his name was Wilby. And he was an older guy, kind of short, not very big, a little bit rumpled. And, and so he seemed like he was the easiest guy. But, you know, he had a good spirit about him. And I was talking to him this one day, and he goes, are you done? And I'm am I done what? He goes, sit down and shut up. 
And I go, what? <laughs> and he goes, he goes, this may be the last conversation we ever have, but I owe it to you, to my God, and to this program to tell you the truth. How many days do you have clean and sober now? And I said, 22. And I was really proud of that. And he goes, oh, 22. You got the, you got the world by its tail, don't you? <laughs> and I was saying, no, but I know what I need to do. And he goes, you are so full of yourself that you know nothing. He said, you think that you know everything and you're not willing to listen to much of anything. And he says, you find all the differences. And I go, what do you mean by that? And he goes, oh, I listen to you. I listen to you talk your little side conversations and with your buddies from the treatment program. And I hear, I've been listening to what you're saying. I go, what have I been saying? And he goes, you were making fun of Mary in the meeting the other day. And he said, you know, Mary's got nine years sober. And because her drink of choice is Long Island iced tea, you say that's some weak stuff. And so you don't even give her credit for having earned her nine years, the pain that she has gone through and the price that she has paid to get sober and have her relationship with God. You think you're different than her. And he says, because you have your own PDR, a physician's desk reference, that you can go in and talk to any doctor and you could probably go in and rock up some cocaine and make your own drugs and you speak Spanish, you can go across the border, you think you're all of that. And I go, what do you, and then he says, or on the other hand, are you a son of perdition? Because you've been elders quorum president, you're a return missionary, and Sometimes you think you've gone too far and you think that there's no hope of ever redeeming you. He says, which one is it? Because I've heard you say all those things. He goes, why don't you just recognize that you're a garden variety and find yourself in anyone's story and apply that common solution that we all have? And he says, don't you realize that alcohol, he says, you haven't drank in years. And I go, no, I haven't. And he says, well, alcohol comes in many forms. So in the meetings, when you hear people use the word alcohol, why don't you just substitute whatever's kicking your butt? Because alcohol comes in pill, powder, liquid, leaf, and behavioral forms. And he says, and then you apply that common solution that we all have. And I said, well, thanks for sharing, but see, ya. you know, I was pretty offended because I thought I knew better. Long story short, I ended up leaving. I finished that treatment center, and I went and worked on my uh, BYU roommate's uh, parents' cattle ranch up in Montana. And I worked up there all summer, and I stayed clean. And, you know, I had four, four and a half months or so. And then one day I, I was having some carpal tunnel. I didn't know what it was, but my wrists were really hurting because I was doing a lot of fencing. And I'd been thrown from a horse a couple of times, and I just had a few aches and pains, and I snapped, and I drove 90, almost 100 miles to the doctor in Shelby, Montana, and I got a prescription for some pain pills. And then I stopped at the liquor store and got a six-pack of beer, and before I was back to the ranch, I'd finished everything. And so there goes four and a half months clean and yeah. sober. Well, this is a point. This is kind of, a, again, another turning point in your life. Yeah. You could say that, that you were heading downward again. Yeah, because, and so I thought when I went into the treatment, I had learned what I needed to learn, and I had reconnected with God. I was having real spiritual experiences up in that cattle ranch. I was going back to church again. We would, you know, go to the local branch. I remember the first Sunday I was there, it was a fast Sunday, and I bore my testimony. But I hadn't recognized that in order to stay clean and sober, you have to work a daily program of maintenance, of spiritual connectivity to God. 
And just saying my prayers, reading a page or two of the scriptures was not enough to prevent someone who was recently recovering from a full-blown relapse with the hardest drugs on the planet. You know, it just wasn't enough. I wasn't paying a full enough price. So long story short, after I'd relapsed in the ranch there, I, I came back. I ended up selling everything that I had. I sold my car. I sold my clothes, my stereo, all my recordings. And I ended up living on the streets and committing crimes to pay for my addiction to heroin and cocaine again. And I did the things that I said that I would never do. I started stealing from stores and from people. And then I finally committed a robbery. The lie that I told myself is, oh, I'm only going to rob a store so their insurance will cover it. And I don't even know how to use this gun, so I'm not going to show the gun and I'll just keep the bullet in the chamber. It'll be the safety will be on and everything else. And, and that's the lie that I told myself to give myself permission to do something that there's no conscionable way to do. But I did it, and, and I got a handful of cash, stuffed it in my pocket, ran down the street. It was early December. It was dark outside, and I was hiding in the bushes. And I had a dark coat on, dark glasses on, a dark cap. No one was going to find me in the middle of this giant pine bush but God. God knew exactly where I was. I was in the bushes, and I was going through withdrawals, but I was saying, you know what, just stay calm. In an hour, the cops will all be gone. I'll just be able to go out and call a cab and go get my, my fix, and I'll be okay. But God had a different idea. He replayed for me in absolute clarity what I had just done, and I saw what I had not given myself permission to see in my denial. I saw exactly what I had done, that this wasn't some nameless clerk in a store. This was a man in his early 40s. And I saw the look of fear in his eyes as he realized that I was asking him for his money. And I saw his hands start to tremble as he reached for the cash register. And then I heard what I had not heard while I was in there, but I heard it this time when it was replayed in my mind. He said, please don't hurt me. I have kids at home. How could I have done that to another man, to a brother, knowing what I know about the gospel and knowing how God literally saved my life and pulled me out of prison and out of addiction before? And in that moment of awful truth, I knew what I had done, and I became judge, jury, and I decided that I no longer deserved to live. So I figured out how to get the safety off the gun and get the bullet into the chamber, and I still remember what that gunmetal tasted like as I started to pull the trigger, and that trigger started to yield, and then all of a sudden the whole world went silent. No more sirens, no more cars driving by, no more lights. There was nothing but this voice. And the voice said with absolute clarity, I'm still here. And I said, how can you be God after all that I've done? But he didn't move. And this was not one of those warm, fuzzy moments like I had had with God before in my life. This was not something that was sweet, but it was absolutely clear and memorable, and God did not move. And he was still there with me, and I finally said, what do I do? And he said, start by being honest. Take my hand. I'll show you the rest of the way. 
time it stopped, everything, I was paralyzed. My arms and legs, legs felt like they weighed a thousand pounds. But I still had that choice in my head, that will. And I said, okay, God, I'm willing. And I put the gun down. And I don't know how long it took me. This could have lasted a few seconds, but it could have been a half an hour. But I finally walked out of the bushes, and I remember those first two steps. It was everything in my power to, to walk out. But I walked out, and I saw some uh, police officers down in the corner, and I walked up to them, and I said, I'm the one you're looking for as I put my hands up. And they, they took me right in, and I pled guilty an hour or two later at the initial hearing to armed robbery, which is what I had done. The judge told me I didn't even have to enter a plea. I, he said, just enter a not guilty plea. And I said, no, judge, I know what I did. And he goes, well, you have the right to change that plea because this is just your initial hearing. But when, I came, when the time came a week or two later to change it, I didn't change it because God said, start by being honest. And that is what I had done. So there's no self-pity in this story. I am grateful that I didn't get everything that I deserved. Because if I had gotten everything I deserved, I never would have got out of prison. But I pled guilty, and they have a matrix, uh, which is you know, a suggested guideline for how long you'll serve in prison. And they said mine was 14 to 16 years, because I'd been in prison a couple of right. times before. But this time... I went to the parole board after six months or nine months, and then they gave me a five and a half year rehearing. So I was I was on my I was back in prison. It literally took at least a month before I could even sleep again, uh, going through withdrawals and everything. But I remember that it was God that had saved me, and I had committed to God that whatever it took, I was going to be honest, and I was going to follow him. And I, re and I was praying every day, and I got to the point where I was starting to feel healthy again. I started doing a few push-ups and sit-ups in my cell, and I got some scriptures. I was reading the scriptures, and I was just, you know, all you have time to do is think. And I was contemplating, and I dropped to my knees this one time, and I said, God, I've been able to testify that Jesus is the Christ for over five years now. I know that he absolutely is, and I can quote scriptures out of all the standard works. Uh, Old and New Testament, Bible, Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants. I can even quote a little bit of Gandhi and of Abraham Lincoln and wow. Thomas Jefferson uh, because these are my heroes. I used to have posters on my walls of, of my dorm at BYU because these were the things that motivated and inspired me. But I said, I don't know how to stay clean and sober. And God whispered to me. He didn't even address all these things that I believed in. Basically, he was affirming that, yes, those things were all true and right and good. But this is what he said. He said, you know those 12 steps that you never thought were for you? You might want to reevaluate. And I realized in my arrogancy, I had never thought the 12 steps applied to me. Why was that? Because I figured they were in my— Because you were in control? Part of it was that— I thought they were watered-down version of the Bible, of the, of the gospel. Okay. And I thought the gospel is enough to save people. 
But I didn't realize until after that, and when I started to really uh, digest the 12 steps, I started going to AA meetings and eventually to NA meetings, I saw that they're simply the steps of faith and repentance broken down into a daily accountability format, which allows you to be honest and not have a relapse or a falling away from your beliefs because it keeps you every single day, 24 hours a day is what matters. You live in today. And that was that honesty on a daily basis was what was eluding me because you can be honest 29 out of 30 days in a month, but if that one dishonest day, you, you allow yourself to take a drug and you are an addict, Boom, you've started your addiction over again. It's not like you take the drug once and stop. At least it wasn't for me. Now, I'm not going to say every addict is that way, and I'm not going to say that every person that takes a drug is an addict, but we run that risk that when we cede control to whatever our habit or addiction is, that we cede control to the adversary. And the adversary is far more powerful than we give him credit for. He's far more powerful than I am. And so basically, I was taking my hand off of the iron rod out of God's hand and saying, here, Satan, do with me what you want while I get high. And I have to be really honest about it. That's exactly what happens. And when Satan does what he wants with me, he makes me feel so full of shame and guilt that I don't feel like I deserve to come back to God, even after one time of getting high. Yeah. So one of the things that I've learned recently, I've heard this recently, which puts it in a nutshell— uh, Satan knows our names, but he calls us by our sins and our failures. God knows our sins and our failures, but he calls us by our names. Yeah. The difference between shame and hate versus love and forgiveness. When we take ourselves out of God's hands, I don't know of a human being who is strong enough to last very long fighting against Satan. Because I really believe as much as I know there is a God, there is an adversary. And the adversary simply hates all mankind because we're God's children. He fights against us. Now, I don't have to get off on some long philosophical tangent about that, but that is pretty central to what I'm talking about. If you have made a covenant with God and you step outside of that covenant, you put yourself in Satan's power. And being in Satan's power is nowhere where any of us should want to be. Absolutely. It's just, it's that old analogy of the the stagecoach driver, they're hiring a new stagecoach driver, and they say to the first uh, applicant, you know, how do you drive? And he says, oh, I can get so close to the edge, I can hang a wheel off. And the second one says, oh, I can knock boulders off onto the road be below. And the third guy says, I don't know. I say as close to the inside as possible. Who gets the job? Yeah. But we have to be that smart when it comes to our faith and our trust because why take chances when it, they could be catastrophic? You know, we can go off the road in that stagecoach. We will lose lives. We will yeah. lose what we're entrusted with. I'm way too old to play that game anymore. <laughs> and I was, I was back in prison. I was 31 years old by then. Yeah. And uh, I knew I was going to be there for a while. So 
God started me back on the 12 steps, and of course he approved me going back to church. So I got involved with the institute program. I got involved with the church. Um, I got involved with the college program, and I started exercising again. All of those things were absolutely critical to me going forward. But eventually I realized what God had been telling me all along about all these things that I had done to improve and And I saw clearly why I had failed after those five years of prison in Arizona. I had gone the education route, the self-discipline route, the exercise route, and the self-improvement route. And God said, all of that's fine and good. But unless you come to me first and foremost, all of the rest of it will be fluff. Now, if you come to me first and foremost, you can use all those other things to become a better version of you. Of course you can, but you can't fix yourself. And so when I talk to people now, I, I try and make it real simple. If I was a combination of the best and brightest who ever existed, if I was Einstein and Gandhi and Mother Teresa, and let's throw President Nelson in there, and I was Michael Jordan and Tiger Wood all <laughs> rolled into one— Could I perfect myself? Could I even save myself? It's pretty laughable to think about. And I look in the mirror. God told me to look in the mirror a few years ago, and he goes, what do you see? And I said, I see an old, fat, bald guy. (laughs) And he goes, okay, I'm glad you're back in reality now. And he goes, but that's enough. He says, you, the version of you that is you and me together, as long as you don't take your hand out of mine, that's enough. That's all I require you to be the best version of yourself. Yeah. You don't have to be this perfectionist. In fact, perfectionism will kill you. And so I started off in the, the 12 steps as well. Now, I was going to end up spending nine years in prison. I didn't know that at the time, but nine years is a far less than the 14 or 16 that was my matrix sure. and far less than the life top that I theoretically could have had. And nine years was truly a small price to pay to have my life given back to me. And one of the things that the 12 steps require you to do, guess what? It's the gospel principle of repentance. Yeah. You make amends to those whom you've harmed. You own what you have done and make amends. So I started writing letters to the stores that I'd stolen from. I started paying back. You know, I got a job in the prison. I had a couple of jobs. I was a chapel janitor, and I got a job as a, as a tutor in the college program, and I was a literacy tutor as well. You know, I would make like 60 cents an hour, so, you know, maybe $100 a month, but I would pay this business back $2, this business back $3, this business back $5. And I would do that every month. Eventually, I paid back almost everybody that I owed over the years. I still remember I owed money to J.C. Penney for a watch that I'd stolen. It was a $135 watch wow. with, with the tax. And I still it was a Gruen watch. It was a gold watch. And, and I paid him back about $70. And I was sending like $4 a month to him. And I'd done it for... 15, 17 months in a row, something like that. It was about $70. And I get a letter back from the man, from the store manager, and he said, your debt is now paid in full. He said, he said that we had inspired them by my willingness to be honest and that they wanted to contribute what I had given. And so they had matched it there in the store, and they'd written off the rest of it. Mm. Now, how are these things possible if there is not a God? 
But so how do I pay back the guy that I've robbed though? Because yeah, that, the convenience store that night. Yeah, it's not money that's the problem. It's the fear that I put into this guy. And so I talked to the guy that was sponsoring me there at the prison, and he said, you have to own your side and not make excuses. And he says, then you have to leave the consequences, the fallout, up to God and to him. So I, I fasted and I prayed and I fasted and I prayed, and I finally wrote to him, and I, I, his name was Frederick Parvez. And I said, you didn't deserve to have your world rocked by me that night. I can't express how sorry I am, but I can tell you that I'm committed to changing my life, and if there's anything I can ever do, I want to do it. And I, I talked a little bit about what I was doing to try to change my life, but I just said, I know that you're my brother, and you didn't deserve that. And I sent it off, and I really remember how I felt when I sent it. I said, this is really weak, because I'm not offering him anything other than basically an apology. But I sent it off with a prayer, and a couple months later, I got a letter back from him. It literally came on my birthday. Of all days, God's been very symbolic with me, so I don't forget the big the big messages. <laughs> yeah. Came on my birthday, I go, Frederick Parvez, he wrote me back? And I opened it up, and this is how the letter started. I'll never forget. He says, my dear brother in Christ, of course I forgive you. Then he went on to tell me that he was an immigrant from the Middle East who had moved to this country because this was a country of religious and political freedom, and he wanted to raise his family where they could follow the beliefs that they believed in. And he went on to tell me that he was a born-again Christian, and he says, and I know you're LDS, so you're what we call a Mormon. And he says, but I'm persuaded that you have the same God and I have the same God and you have the same Savior and I have the same Savior and you are my brother. <laughs> Frederick and I wrote for 28 years at Christmas time every single year. And three and a half years ago, um, I sent off a Christmas card to him. I got one back just a few days later and he says, come and see me. And so I went and saw him. I went and knocked on his door, and he answered the door. And I knew he knew what I looked like because my Christmas card had the picture. Sure. But he acted like he didn't know me at first. He looks at me, and then he goes, oh, it is you. You're a little older. You're a lot balder, and you're a little fatter. <laughs> and then he goes, come in. He said that with a smile. He brings me into his living room. And it's decorated for Christmas. There's a Christmas tree there. There's a mantle with a manger scene on it. And then he starts asking me about my family. And then he shows me pictures of his kids and his grandkids, like he's a relative of mine. Hmm. And then he says, and how is your faith, brother? And, and then he says, and are you still doing this 12-step program? And before I was even able to finish answering, he he goes, I can tell by the twinkle in your eye that you are good, that you are good with God, and that you are working your program. And we just talked some small talk for a few minutes. And then I said, Frederick, I said, I just want you to know how grateful I am for your forgiveness all those years ago. It has changed my life. And then he grabs me and pull, he, by the forearm pulls me into where just face to face, less than a foot apart from each other. And he says, and to you, my brother, I owe my gratitude because of your faith and you never giving up. I am a better man as well. Wow. 
Now, how is that possible? If Jesus is not the Christ, if the promises of the gospel and of the 12 steps, if God is not standing behind those promises, because one of the couple of the promises in the 12 of the 12 steps are we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us and we will suddenly come to realize that God is doing for us what we could never do for ourselves pretty good definition of grace right there yeah absolutely and i've been able to live that because of that forgiveness from frederick we exchanged christmas cards again this year I've been able to heal with parents and family. When I first went back to prison, it hurt my, my mom continued to be my mom. She never even missed a beat in writing me a letter. I know it hurt her tremendously, but I was able to manage her affairs for the last 10 years of her life. She had a stroke and we sold her house in Arizona and moved her up here. It was for about Seven and seven and a half years, I guess. And we were able to see her two or three times a week until she passed away. And she turned her all of her affairs over to me. My dad, it took a couple of years before he even wrote to me. And it was very businesslike after that. Mm. But my sister, who was the only one who had stayed active in the church, she didn't respond to a single letter. The first few letters were returned to sender. And then my mom just told me, just don't, don't write to her anymore. I still would write to her, but I would not get anything back. And I finally went to the parole board after five and a half years. And I was down in Gunnison Prison then. And I look up and I see my mom coming in. And I go, Mom, how did she get here? My mom was 70 something years old. How'd she drive up here from Tucson? It's 800 miles to Gunnison. And then I see my sister walking in behind my mom. Then my sister, my sister catches my eye, looks in my eye, and she smiles at me. My sister passed away in 2000, and we were best friends again. And my sister had kidney disease. She had a couple of transplants. My mom was one of the transplants, but my sister stayed faithful in the church, and she had every reason to give up on me, but she didn't. When she first met Tammy, when she first found out about Tammy, she told me not to let her get away. And then she met Tammy. Yeah, Tammy's my wife. And she met Tammy. I got to tell you a funny story about Leslie. We had patched things up and we're talking pretty often. I'd gotten out of prison. Tammy had started visiting me at the last part of prison. We got connected through an LDS ward in Provo. She would drive up to the prison to visit me. And uh, Tammy was a returned missionary who's never tried anything harder in her life than Dr. Pepper. (laughs) And I like to tease her about that, but um, I'm really grateful she's never tried anything harder. So I guess Tammy and I had been seeing each other for over a year, counting the time in prison, and then after I got out. And Leslie asked me about Tammy, and she asked me who I was dating, and I said, no one. She said, well, what about Tammy? And I said, oh, yeah, she's my best friend. We see each other. And she goes, how often do you see each other? Every day. Uh, who, who is Tammy dating? Oh, nobody. Uh, she's not dating anyone, and you see each other every day. And she was quiet for all of five seconds, which was a long time for Leslie. <laughs> and then she let me have it. She said, mister, you ever heard of Fisher Cup Bait? 
And I said, what do you mean? I, I've heard the expression, but yeah. she goes, I'm telling you, she's not hanging out with you because you got a good hairline. I lost all my hair by then. <laughs> um, and because you tell funny jokes, I don't tell the funniest jokes. She said, and you owe it to her and you owe it to yourself to find out if there's something more. And if there is, then do something about it. And if there isn't, you let her go because you're doing her and yourself a great disservice. And I said, oh, other than that, you have no opinion, right? <laughs> and she goes, you heard what I said. And that weekend I fasted and I prayed and my feelings about Tammy changed. That following Monday when I saw Tammy, she came up after work again. She works at BYU, by the way. I decided to kiss her on the cheek and she didn't turn away. And then I held her hand and she held on. And I went, oh, there is something there. <laughs> and a couple weeks later, my my brain is going 100 miles an hour. I'm trying to figure out how to save up enough money to get a wedding ring. And, ta and Leslie calls me up again and said, how are things going? And I said, well, they're going really well. I know that she is the one. She goes, well, what are you waiting for? And I said, well, I've got $200, but I, the cheapest ring that I think she would like is about $600. So I've got it'll take me a couple months to save up that much. I was working kind of a minimum wage job at Deseret Book Distribution Center in the warehouse there. And she goes, hmm. And two days later, I get a, a priority mail, little package, and I open it up. My sister sent me her wedding ring wow. and said, use this. And so... Uh, a couple days later, it was Valentine's Day, and I asked Tammy to come up. I said, I want to take you out to dinner tonight. But I guess Tammy already had that feeling inside that I was going to pop the question that night, too. And uh, that's a whole other story, but Tammy said yes. And uh, How long have you guys been married now? We've been married for July, May 21 years. Okay. And Leslie was in our temple wedding. We got married in the Mount Timpanogos Temple on July 5th of 1997. And Leslie was there. Leslie passed away in 2000 from her kidney disease. And she has been one of our family's guardian angels. So I got out of prison in, in 96. We got married in 97. I had one short relapse uh, at the end of... In 98, in October of 98, it lasted a couple weeks, and then I pulled my head out. And and I've never relapsed since. And I'm not going to excuse that relapse. I'm just grateful it didn't kill me or end our marriage. But I now go to meetings every day still. That's been 20 and, years. Yeah. I've been going to – I've been involved with the LDS 12-step program. The, they now call it the Addiction Recovery Program, ARP, since it was first a pilot program at the Utah State Prison in 1992, I was in the very first group there. And, you know, a couple of relapses back then, but I've stayed consistent. Even after I'd relapsed, I kept on going. And I served as a facilitator for about nine years, and I've been a missionary now for about 12 years. And I go to meetings every day. Uh, sometimes I go to AA meetings, sometimes NA meetings, CA meetings. If it has a 12 in it or an A in it, <laughs> I can find myself can in it. it. There's a common ground. There's a reason. And I can find – so that's been one of the major things that I have found is to find the similarities rather than the differences. My old sponsor, Wilby, when he challenged me, he said, find your story in everyone else's yeah. story rather than find the differences. Now, isn't that a good prescription for, for finding our place in the church as well? 
we find the similarities we have rather than picking apart the differences we have. Because ultimately, there's far more that unites us than there is that separates us as human beings. Yeah. And if we we will have that kind of an outlook, then we're going to find the the faith and the connectivity, the connection with God, but with our fellow men that we need. Yeah. So a couple of things that I've learned. Uh, somebody asked me well years ago. He goes, Mark. He goes, he goes. You look like a bishop. He goes, Why do you still go to meetings? You don't need meetings, still, do you? And I was about ready to give him some smart aleck response, <laughs> and then the Spirit just stepped in and and gave me the words. And they said, if I get to go to meetings for the rest of my life, isn't that a small price to pay to have a rest of my life? An hour, hour and a half a day to connect with the God of my understanding, to connect with my fellow travelers who are trying to become better from whatever it is that's afflicting them, whether they're coming for addictions or behaviors or for uh, depression or for just feeling less than. We're all trying to connect to God and and stay on the covenant path and just, you know, uh, be better people. And so that's been one of the things that I've learned. And people have asked me, do you still, you know, has the obsession ever been completely removed? Do you ever think about drugs or alcohol? Occasionally I do. I'll, I'll give you a couple of for instances because if I were to stop going to meetings, what if I had one of these incidents happen and I was vulnerable again? I remember watching a baseball game on TV with my sons a few years ago, and they had some commercial come on for beer, and they were putting these limes in the top of the beer, and there were a bunch of girls running around on the beach, and I said, oh, that, that looks like it would taste good. And my son said, Dad, did you just say that? <laughs> and I realized I had said it out loud. And I went, oh, my goodness. Oh, no, I didn't. I don't mean that. I don't want that. But there's moments that we, happens. Can, we can get vulnerable. You know, you see a bunch of girls in bikinis running around on a beach with, and I like lime on anything. And <laughs> lime or lemon on anything makes it taste good. And so I, we have weaknesses every once in a while. So I'm not going to say until the day that God tells me, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into my rest. I've not heard those words yet. <laughs> so I better be safe. Now, the other thing is I better find the common ground wherever I am because you never know. So I'm going to tell you a story. It was uh, 14 years ago. It was November of 2004. My mom calls me from Arizona, and she's not feeling good. Mm. My sister had passed away already. It's just me and my sister. And so I'm five five and a half years clean and sober. Then I'm going to meetings. I'm in a very good place. So Tammy says, go, go, go be with your mom. See what she needs. And so I fly down to Tucson, rent a car, drive down to Sierra Vista, 70, 75 miles. And... I'm in a good place. And then all of a sudden, as I'm getting close to Sierra Vista, I pass the Nogales turnoff. And I remembered right then, oh, I've been to Nogales a thousand times and never once for the right reason. Um, That's where I used to go to get drugs and everything else. But guess who else reminded me of that? The adversary. We call it the committee. The committee are the voices in your head that remind you of all the things that have ever caused you guilt and shame in your life. All those voices that tell you that you're less than, or who do you think you are? You think you've cleaned up. And then that committee reminded me that of all these incidences, 
back when I was a teenager and I was running amok and I ended up in prison and how I had hurt my mom and my dad and my sister and my committee was relentless then. And I started to sweat. So I've been trained to do a couple of things. The first is to pray. Well, I tried to pray and I felt like my head was full of lead. I felt like my prayer did not even go out of the car because the lead in my head mm. stopped it. That was the impression I had. Well, that's exactly how Satan wants you to feel right. you're in his power. The second thing I've been trained to do is talk, call your sponsor. See, the the connections we have with other people, and this is this is an absolute truth for me. I have a connection with God on a daily basis, but every once in a while, I don't know if I didn't pay my cell phone bill, I didn't read the scriptures uh, with enough intent, but there's some interference. And I try to pray and I'm not really getting through. Well, you can talk to another human being. And if you talk to another human being who is in the same wavelength, before you know it, within a few minutes, you're starting to hear and feel God again. So I said, okay, where's my phone? I'm going to call my sponsor. And I realized I left my cell phone at home because they had roaming charges back then. Oh, okay. And the last time I'd gone down there, I'd run up a $400 bill in oh like four gosh. days. And so I told my wife, I'm not taking my cell phone because I'm not going to come up with a $400 bill. Sure. You know, that's a lot of freaking money. Yeah. <laughs> So, and I said, God, I I don't know what to do. I literally was sweating and my stomach was rumbling. That's how, that's how close to a relapse I was. And I had this little vision of my mom and I just said to myself, get to my mom. She's only 15, 20 miles down the road. Get to my mom. So I pulled into mom's house. I go in. She's actually feeling better by then. And I give her a big hug and I said, Mom, where's the phone book? And I opened the phone book. What do you find on the first page of the phone book? AA, AA hotline. Oh, the A, yeah. Because, and intentionally, it's the AA puts their hotline in the, it's one of the first two or three entries on every phone book and probably the whole world. And so I called the AA hotline. See, I'd already, I'd already before I went down, I looked up the, the times and addresses of the LDS 12-step meetings, but there wasn't going to be one of those for three days. I knew I was in a bad place, so I needed to go to a meeting. So I called the AA hotline, and I said, uh, hey, glad you answered. Uh, when's the next meeting? And he tells me, tomorrow. Mm. And I said, oh. That's a I, long time. I need a meeting. I need a meeting tonight. And he goes, well, there's you got to go back up to Tucson. I couldn't tell him I would make a left turn at Nogales. I would never make it to Tucson. But he must have intuited that because he said, but you know, um, if you're open to it, we have a sister program called NA. And I go, oh, yeah, I actually have a home group down in, uh, up in Utah. And he goes, well, you're in luck. There's a meeting tonight, and here's the address, and it's in two hours. And I go, oh, thank you. And, and so I, I couldn't even eat dinner with my mom. My brain was so scrambled. Mm. Because I'm remembering all of these things which I thought I had dealt with, but when your committee is, starts to gain access to you, they come in like stormtroopers, <laughs> and they just wreak havoc until you're able to cast them out or put them to bed somehow, and the meeting was the only vehicle I knew at that time, so... I couldn't even eat dinner with my mom. I picked up my food, gave my mom a hug, and she she knew me well enough to know that when I said I needed to go to a meeting, go to a meeting. Yeah. Because I like this version of you. I don't want the old version. Right. Back. So I go to the meeting and I pull in and I go, you're kidding me. 
it was the seven. It was the Circle K actually that I had robbed when I was seventeen, and I first went to prison in Arizona. That's where they're having the meeting. It's now been turned into a non-denominational church on the one side and an insurance agency on the other side. But I'm sitting in the parking lot, and this committee I have is literally laughing at me. They said, "Oh, you thought you you thought you were never going to have to think about this again." And then they pulled out one of the most vicious things. I thought I'd made amends about all that, but they said, no, you didn't make amends. You never found out even the name of that clerk in that seven in that Circle K. I remembered it was a middle-aged woman, and I tried years later to find out, and they had no record of anything. Mm. And see, this was before computers and sure. everything. And the committee was just beating me with everything that they had. And I was one ignition click away from turning out the car and going to Nogales. And my legs weighed a 1,000 pounds again. But I said, you know what? I've been trained to go to a meeting. Give the program a chance. Give God a chance. So I walked in, and there's 15, 20 people in there and a bunch of pews set up. And I just sat down in one of the pews. And the meeting starts, and it's just going over my head. And it's it, I'm, I'm not registering. And then some guy comes in late and plops down next to me. And I look over at him, and he's got tattoos everywhere that I can see, all over his hands and all over his neck. And he's even got teardrops coming from the corner of his eyes. They're called lagrimas in Spanish. And if you're a Spanish gangbanger, it means you're in a certain gang, the M-Men, the Mexican Mafia. And because I'd been in prison down there, I knew, and I go, great, a gangbanger. You know, that's just my luck. I'm going to get stuck before the night's over. <laughs> and But see, that th the reason I tell that is because I was not finding common ground. I was looking at the differences, and I was finding, I was, it was in a negative place, so I was finding negative about other people around me. This guy was in a meeting. I should have given at least that much credit. Right. But the meeting's going on, and 10 minutes before the meeting ended, God figured out how to get through to me. This guy that was sitting next to me stood up and said, my name's Gabe. I'm an alcoholic and addict in recovery. And he pointed to a picture up in the wall, and I looked, and it's Christ hanging on the cross. We're in a non-denominational Christian church. He says, I'm not ashamed to admit that that man hanging on the wall is my God. He is my higher power. And because of him, I've got four and a half years now. And I just came from working with my sponsor, and we've been going over my sixth step, working on becoming willing to get rid of all my character defects. And one of them happens to be perfectionism, which happens to be one of my biggest character defects. And all of a sudden, I realized this guy's speaking my language, and he's speaking about my God. And he drew me in. And he went on to express gratitude for the program and gratitude for God. And then he finished, and then we had the serenity prayer at the end. We all hold hands and have the serenity prayer, and which is a wonderful prayer. As if to put an exclamation point on all of it, the prayer ends, the front door bangs open, and a little boy about four or five runs in saying, Daddy, Daddy, and he jumps into this dude Gabe's arms. And then right behind him comes a woman, is the wife, his, the boy's mom. And they, they're standing hugging in front of me, 15 feet in front of me. And right then I heard God again, and God said, Now that's a family. That's what I do for people in recovery. Now go back and take care of your mom. 
all of your efforts have been accepted and you're okay. And all of that obsession, all of that compulsion, all of that shame and guilt was ripped away. And I went was able to enjoy a day with my mom and make sure she was fully better. And I got her some groceries, flew back to Utah. And two days later, it was Thanksgiving. And a month later, on Christmas morning, our boy was born, our first and only child after eight years of trying. That boy is now 13 and a half and I've been able to coach his little league team for the last seven years. And uh, he's never had to see me drunk or loaded. So that's why I am so grateful for my Savior, Jesus Christ, and for the program that he has given for alcoholics and addicts to come unto him. The addiction recovery program of the church, the 12 steps of AA and NA and any of the uh, anonymous associations, are inspired in my in my way of thinking because I really believe that God loves all of his children of whatever stripe or persuasion and that he's even willing to remain anonymous at first if that's what it takes to bring his kids back to him. And over time, he will reveal who he is as people become ready for that greater light and knowledge. But that's been my way of staying clean and sober. And what has it brought me? Well, 19 and a half years clean and sober this time, but it still is just one day at a time. I've been able to serve in a couple of bishoprics. I've served in the high priest group leadership, and now I'm in the elders quorum presidency again. I've been a missionary for the last 12 years, but really it's not about me. It's about what God is doing in me and through me and with me. The funny and really ironic thing is my career is as a realtor now. I used to break into people's houses. Now they give me keys to people's houses. It tells me that God does have a sense of humor, but I will not try him on that. I've never taken one pill or one penny from any house or any business. And I've even been able to volunteer in my kids' school and pass background checks. I am incredibly grateful. I could probably go on until the sun comes up talking the stories of my gratitude and my recovery But I think this is enough for now. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this portion, this part one of our two-part series with Mark Miner on the importance of the addiction recovery program and missionary work. Stay tuned next week for part two of our interview and series with Mark Miner on this that will go over many more of the practical aspects and the takeaways that we can have from this particular story and the addiction recovery program. Thank you for listening to the LDS Mission Cast. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and other social media. And thank you for listening. All past episodes of the LDS Mission Cast can be found at ldsmissioncast.com. <laughs>